0: Hi, I'm Xavier McFarlane, and welcome to the Catholic City Podcast from the Mary Foundation. Today's episode is the classic and fascinating account of the conversion of Scott Hahn. He tells his journey about going from a deeply intellectual Protestant minister to full communion in the Catholic Church, the last place he ever thought he'd end up. But first, if you ever considered becoming a Catholic, or are a Catholic seeking to deepen your relationship with Christ, Please visit us at CatholicCity.com to order our Catholic Scapulars, books, booklets, relic prayer medals, and best-selling novels by Bud McFarlane. Sign up for Bud's twice-a-month Catholic City email message, where he's been sharing profound insights, sage advice, and crazy stories for over 25 years. We are also the world's largest distributor of the Purple Scapular, given by Mary to the approved French mystic Marie-Julie Jehenny in the late 1800s. You can learn more at our website, CatholicCity.com, which is the online home of the Mary Foundation. Since the dawn of the internet, we've been a world leader in delivering proven, free, or low-cost tools for evangelization right to your door. And now, let's begin.
1: First of all, I'd like to thank you for the opportunity to come out here and and speak. What I do plan to share, first of all, is how it is that I came about uh, to become a Roman Catholic. It was the last thing on earth I ever planned to be, and if somebody had said to me 10 years ago, Ten years from tonight, you will be speaking to a Roman Catholic parish in Riverside, California about why you became a Roman Catholic. I would have been in the hospital with broken ribs for my laughter. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was something that was just simply inconceivable, but like so many, I had many misconceptions about the Roman Catholic Church that were deep and profound, but curable. <laughs> uh, Archbishop Fulton Sheen once said, not 100 in the United States hate the Roman Catholic Church but millions hate what they mistakenly think the Roman Catholic Church is. That's a key distinction. You'd be amazed how few people really understand the Roman Catholic Church and then hate what they properly understand. I'm not even sure it would be a hundred. Now, I'm going to break down my own conversion process into various stages. And I want to just share briefly... From the very outset, that the way I've experienced it has has sort of varied from uh, from one stage to the next. In the very beginning, my study was rooted in sacred scripture, and I was intense, I was passionate, I was just going at it with all my energy. And it was for me a sort of a detective story, where I was searching for clues to find the truth, to to find to find the place in the world, to find the place in Christendom where the truth was being lived, where the truth was being taught, but the truth was really being understood and lived out in a daily way. And I was a very energetic detective, searching out every possible clue I could find, and you know, like a detective who's open to whatever conclusions the evidence may lead him to, I began at some points to see a trail leading in the general direction of Rome, but having written that off as a possible source of truth. I didn't imagine for a moment that that's where I would end up. But that's where I began. And then, as anybody who goes through this kind of conversion process will tell you, the detective story slowly, gradually changes into a kind of horror story, where all of a sudden, that Roman Catholic Church that you knew you could oppose and be on safe ground, you knew it went against the the Bible and every significant point regarding salvation and other things, all of a sudden, this detective story became a horror story as I was looking at the Roman Catholic Church and one discovery after another, after another, after another, and I kept thinking, well, they, they stumbled onto the truth in this case, and then in that case. And then after 10 or 15 instances, it just gets to be chilling. And then finally... The process becomes a supernatural one. No one knows. I certainly didn't know when that happened, you know, how the Holy Spirit was working. But then from a detective story to a horror story, it becomes a sort of romance tale where all of a sudden you're discovering that what it is you're looking at, what it is you're terrified of, is really, in a certain sense, your home. There's an exhilarating sense of homecoming, but even more, a sense that you've discovered your your brothers, your sisters, your mother... The Bride of Christ, it's a tremendous feeling. I want to take you now a little bit slower through the various stages that those three stories represent. My own background is, well, I grew up in a nominal Protestant family. We didn't go to church very often, and all I remember from my boyhood was trying to skip out of Sunday school, whenever my parents would drop me off with my sister, they would go back home, and so my sister and I might go to the mall or do something or other. They caught on that we weren't interested, so we didn't go very often. But by the time I was an early teenager, I was not at all interested in the church, and I was very interested in the world. And I'm a passionate, intense, enthusiastic person. Whenever I do anything, I do it with all, a, a lot of energy, and so I wound up in juvenile court <laughs> with a long list of charges held against me. Uh, only only a few of the things I had actually done I was caught for, but uh, I was staring at a very real prospect of a year and a half in a detention center, and I knew, even if my friends didn't, that things had to change, because my life was headed down fast, and I was out of control. At that time, uh, a man came into my life, I'm sure he was sent by God, we'll call him Jack, and Jack was studying at the University of Pittsburgh, and he was working in a parachurch Protestant ministry. Parachurch means it's not part of any denomination. It was just basically a ministry reaching out to troubled kids and the kids who are unchurched. And Jack used to show up at our high school and talk to us and, you know, shoot baskets after school and come to uh, football games and just hang out, get to know us. And we all knew that he worked with this organization called Young Life, and they had these meetings once a week, and none of us went to them. But anyway, one day I heard uh, through the grapevine that uh, at these meetings there was a tremendous guitar player. So I asked Jack one day when I saw him in school about this, and he said, Sure, you ought to come out and meet Walt. And At the time, I was getting into guitar. It was almost a religion for me. It was helping me to get out of trouble with the law, so I had some constructive pursuits. And I, I wound up one night at this meeting, uh, partially because of the guitarist, partially because this cute girl I was hustling also happened to go to Young Life meetings once a week. Uh, so my motives are never altogether pure, but... I got to know Walt, I came back week after week, and Jack challenged all of us who were coming with the gospel message as he understood it, and that is, we're sinners, and we're in need of salvation, and Christ died for our sins. And we can we have to make a choice with regard to that fact. And so after a a period of time where I examined the facts, the claims, the scriptures, and so on, I made that commitment. You've all heard about it. You can't live out in California and not hear about it. You know, when you ask Jesus Christ into your heart as personal Lord and Savior, that's the uh, the standard Protestant line. And there's, there's something profoundly right about it, even if it's inadequate from a Catholic perspective. If you're ever asked by a Protestant, are you born again? You should say, of course I am. What do you mean by it? And if they say, have you accepted Jesus Christ into your heart as personal Lord and Savior? You should say, yes, of course I have. And I've also accepted onto my tongue and down my throat and into my tummy as person, Lord and Savior, body and blood, soul and divinity as well. But that's not why I was born again. I was born again because I was baptized. In other words, you can always build on the partial truths and insights that our separated brothers and sisters have. There's no need to feel fear. There's no need to be threatened by it. You can always find something that you can build on. At any rate, Jack taught me scripture. I was in high school. He was moving on into seminary, and I used to go down to some seminary classrooms as a senior in high school. And I remember deciding that the, that the historical figure in the history of Christianity that was most important to me, because he was the one that Jack always talked about, was this man named Martin Luther. And so I asked Ms. Dengler one day, can I do my senior research paper on Martin Luther and Sola Day. She said, Solo, well, what? I said, well, don't you know, that's the material principle of the Reformation. That is justification by faith alone versus Roman Catholic legalism. She said, fine, you can do it on whatever you want. Yeah. So I went home, I devoured book after book on Martin Luther. And I wrote a, a, a senior research paper with a great deal of intensity and enthusiasm, got an A on it. And I talked to all my friends all about not only the gospel and the scriptures that I was studying, but also about this man named Martin Luther. In fact, the first serious theology book I ever read was a book of his, uh, Bondage of the Will, a work he considered to be his most important. Anyway, I was graduating from high school, and I was dating a girl very seriously, getting ready to go on to college. She was a Catholic. And we got to be close friends. I played guitar in a band. I got her to be the piano player. And uh, we got to be close and closer, and we were talking marriage. And I knew I couldn't marry a Roman Catholic, so I gave her the Bible of anti-Catholicism. I don't know if you've ever seen it or you've heard of it. It's, it's by a man named Lorraine Bettner. It's called Roman Catholicism. It's a big, fat book filled with errors. <laughs> But uh, I didn't know it at the time, and so I gave it to her, and I gave it to some other friends of mine who were Roman Catholic. And while I was away one summer, she wrote me a letter. She said, thanks for the book. I'll never go back to Mass again. And I really thank God for allowing me to be used as his servant in that way, with all sincerity and blindness. At any rate, at around the same time in my life, another crisis hit that was closely associated with the Roman Catholic Church. My dearly beloved grandmother, and I mean dear, she was a kindly lady in her 80s, very quiet, very humble, but also holy. My dad used to tell us all stories about how, when he was a boy, the family would go on vacations down to uh, South Carolina or Florida, and they would always go the side roads because his mother insisted on it, and they'd always pack an extra picnic basket or two So that when they're going through the towns on the side roads, if she saw any little hungry children, they'd pull the car over and they'd give the child some food to take home to his family. So I remember this every summer, my mom doing that. And that was the kind of grandmother I had, very quiet, humble, and holy. And I think she's hearing me tonight. But uh, she died when I was uh, getting out of high school. And I remember going over to her home with my father and with my brother going through her possessions and finding her prayer book and this missal. And I looked through it, and I thought, Oh, God, please, I hope this superstitious nonsense didn't really trap her soul. And I looked at all the stuff on Mary and the saints and whatnot, and I had been trained to regard all of this as just superstition, as excess baggage that humans invented and just added to complicate a very simple saving gospel. So I took the stuff, without my father knowing it, and I just shredded it, you know, self-righteously perhaps, but sincerely, and I found her rosary beads, both sets of rosary beads, and I remember thinking, oh, she's finally delivered these things, and I broke them apart. It's hard for me to talk about this right now, because I consider her to be a humble and holy woman, but I say it because it might help you understand what Protestants think especially the evangelicals, the fundamentalists, the charismatics out there, who look at Roman Catholicism and simply don't understand it. And if they think they do, they usually oppose it with considerable energy, like I did. So here I was, out of high school, getting ready to go into college, very anti-Catholic, not in a bigoted sense, although I knew some people who were, but my best friends in high school were all Catholic, the ones who drank the most and swore the most. Uh, but I wasn't anti-Catholic for any cultural reasons, it was theological. It was scriptural. I just saw it as being opposed, quite frankly, to sacred scripture. So I went through college and I decided to go into the ministry. And I chose a seminary up in the Boston area, and I got married right out of college. And my wife and I both went to seminary. She got her master's degree in theology as as well as well as me, but uh she had her two years degree, which which is not ordainable, and I got a three year master's divinity to prepare for the pastorate. When I was at the seminary, Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, it uh is located on the on the grounds of a former Carmelite seminary that they purchased because they couldn't find enough vocations. They closed down in the early 70s. When I was there, I I refined my anti-Catholic instincts. I I made them, in a certain sense, uh, more intellectually solid. I became, uh, well, I'm an intense person, so I became somewhat well-known on campus for being very Calvinistic, very Presbyterian, and also very anti-Catholic. I was one person, along with my best friend, the two of us were the only ones in the Presbyterian Fellowship of Seminary Students who wanted the Presbyterian Church to go back to the old, original Westminster Confession because the old, original standard called the Catholic Church Antichrist. And we felt that it was a sort of compromise to delete that. And so that was the the kind of thing we were about. The reason I mention that and the reason I bring up my best friend from seminary is because both of us are now Catholics. He tried to stop me. (laughs) More on that later. At any rate, in three years' time, I graduated at the top of my class. I was very high-powered, energetic. I had formed this a group of of Calvinist Presbyterian students. We called it the uh, Geneva Academy, after Calvin's school in Geneva. We used to get together once a week uh, for breakfast for a couple hours to talk over theology, discuss scripture, to invite professors and to cross-examine them on their views and whatnot. Great time of fellowship, and I and I became fast friends with about a half a dozen to maybe ten students that I've kept close contact with now over the last few years. I graduated in 1982, as I mentioned, uh, at the top of my class. But uh, something happened my last year at seminary. It began a little bit before my last year because my second year of seminary, my wife did something very strange. She took this course in Christian ethics. Taught by a professor who was very, very brilliant. And he divided up the class into various sections. One one section would investigate capital punishment. Another section would investigate nuclear war. Then over here, abortion. And then he had one section investigate birth control. I thought, why birth control? I mean, birth control is not an issue for Protestants, you know. My wife came home and said, guess what section I signed up for? And I said, don't tell me it was birth control. Yeah, birth control, all the other sections were filled and so I, I was put in this, signed up for it. And so, she, anyway, she began to work with two or three of my good friends who were in the same class in that same little small group. And a few days went by and she said, you know, I've never even heard the arguments against birth control. I said, well, fine, I mean, what, what does it matter? A week later she said, you know, the, the arguments are strong. A week and a half goes by, she goes. I'm almost tempted, you know, two weeks later, she's preparing for her in-class presentation. She's the only woman in the class, and she's going to present her view to all of these male seminarians. And then she announced to me, I've changed my mind. I said, as long as it's just your mind and not our practice, huh? She said, no, we'll talk on that later after the presentation. (laughs) Anyway, within the next two days... Three of my friends came up to me and said, your wife's presentation was brilliant. We've all changed our minds. I said, I've got to hear it. (laughs) So she shared it with me, and sure enough, our second year in seminary, both of us came to accept perhaps the one doctrine that otherwise solid Catholics have the most difficulty accepting. It was sort of ironic. I, I thought, well... For once, you know, the Roman Catholic Church got it right. You know, even a blind hog finds an acorn sometimes. You know, uh, you know, the luck of the draw or something. But my third year, my last year at seminary, a crisis erupted. I was looking into doctoral programs. I was going to go over to Aberdeen, Scotland, to study, and I had been lined up for a very good and prestigious program at Aberdeen University. Then we were we discovered we were pregnant my wife specifically. And the reason was, of course, because of her change of mind and the subsequent change of marital practice. And so I couldn't go. We couldn't afford to go, and uh, we had to figure out what we are going to do instead. And this was at the very end of our final semester. Now, that last semester was a tumultuous time because there was a professor at a seminary I was considering studying at who was in the process of being booted out. And it was the seminary that was known for being the staunchest Presbyterian seminary in North America, the most conservative Calvinist school, Westminster. Professor Shepherd was teaching that a man is justified by faith, but not, strictly speaking, by faith alone the way a lot of Protestants believe. Well, he wasn't very clear about it. I talked to him on the phone. I read all of his writings. I got right in the middle of the debate, even though it was in another school. And after studying and studying and talking to my professors and dialoguing with them and debating these issues with my friends and teachers, the last month or two, I told my professor, who I was working for as a teaching assistant, you know, I think Shepherds right. And I think the idea of sola fide, that is, that we're justified by faith alone, not faith in works like the Catholic Church, I think that Luther was wrong. Now, I can't convey to you the kind of traumatic uh, transformation that meant for me because you know you weren't you weren't in my shoes for those years. But for seven years, Luther was my patron saint. Uh, He was the one that I looked to for inspiration and for uh, a kind of powerful proclamation of the word. And then all of a sudden I I reached this point where I thought, well, you know, this is what Martin Luther, Calvin, and all Presbyterians regard as the, as they call it, the article on which the church stands or falls. It is, in a sense, the rationale behind the whole Reformation. And I remember one of my Protestants, one of my Protestant professors teaching in class, that if Rome is right, and we are wrong on sola fide, that were justified by faith alone, if, if, if the Catholic Church is right, that we're justified by Christ's grace, but we're justified by faith and works, he said, then tomorrow morning I'd be on my knees outside the Vatican doorstep, repenting. I'm sure he said that for rhetorical effect, but it sure had a profound impact on me. I thought, wow, you mean the Catholics are that wrong? You know, everything stems from that. So my last month or so at seminary, I had begun to really see that St. Paul did not teach what Martin Luther said, or John Calvin, or John Knox, or all my Presbyterian forebears. Well, I was asked by, by Trinity Presbyterian Church in Fairfax, Virginia, to come on as pastor, and also to teach Bible and philosophy at a Christian high school that was part of the church, and I had no other opportunity or uh, opening at the time, so I, I took it. And we moved down to, uh, to Fairfax, Virginia, right outside of Washington, D.C. And there I began serving as pastor and teacher. Then within about three months or so, a local Presbyterian seminary called me up and said, look, we understand that your classes are going real well, your your, your preaching is very well received. Would you be interested in, in offering a night class on the Gospel of John? I said, sure, that would be That would be very interesting. So, in addition to to pastoring a church and teaching in this high school, I also ended up uh, teaching uh, at the graduate level in this local Presbyterian seminary. Now, some more things start happening here. This is still at the detective story stage because I was teaching the Bible and my session, you know, the session in the Presbyterian church is the group of elders who run the church, the congregation, And my session encouraged me to put in 20 to 30 hours of study each week so that my sermons would last at least 45 to 50 minutes long. Can you imagine what you'd do in a parish if the priest went 45 minutes? You know, it'd be empty the next week. But they were asking me to be sure to study long enough and hard enough to preach that long. And so I I, I said, sure, you know, if you pay me well enough, I, I, I will do it. And they did. And so I was studying scripture. I mean, I was in over my head. I was going to local libraries at the various seminaries and studying. And I was on the cutting edge of, of, well, I was continuing, I was following up on all the things I was learning in seminary about, about the Bible, especially about the Old Testament and how the Old Testament is so little understood, how most people don't understand the way the Old Testament leads right into the New, and the New Testament church is the full flowering, of the old, not the abandonment, not the rejection of the Old Testament, but the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And I was, I was discovering things, I mean, these novel, innovative, blinding insights that were just, they were captivating to my, uh, to my parish. They were very exciting to my seminary students and my high school kids were eating it up as well. But as I began to dig deeper and deeper, a disturbing pattern emerged. Over and over and over again, I would find one blinding insight, one novel innovation after another, having been anticipated by St. Augustine, Justin Martyr, Thomas Aquinas, a pope here or a pope there. And it was shaking me up more and more every time I would find that these Catholic scholars had anticipated all of these novel breakthroughs that I was coming up with through this intense, in-depth scripture study. I got the feeling like I was reinventing the wheel. Well, it happened 10, 15, 20, 25 times. I was going through the book of Hebrews, which is very difficult, going through the book of John, which is very sacramental, and my students were beginning to get a sense that this was not what you would call historic, traditional Presbyterianism. In fact, my, my sharpest student, a girl named Rebecca, came up to me at lunch one day in high school, and she said, "We took a we took a vote in the back corner of the classroom, and, and it was unanimous. We all think you're going to become a Catholic." Chills ran up and down my spine, you know. Broke out a sweat. I I a nervous laugh. <laughs> oh, you guys are funny. <laughs> no, no. What I'm giving you is the the antidote to Catholicism. You know, the antidote. And now. Uh, they were quite sure that, that that wasn't the case. I went home that afternoon, and I said to my wife, Kimberly, you'll never guess what Rebecca and uh, her friend said today at lunch. She, uh, she said that uh, I'm going to become a Roman Catholic. Can you believe that? <laughs> she was standing there staring. Are you? I said, how could you say that? I mean, what a betrayal of your confidence and your trust in me as a pastor, as a teacher, as a student, a scholar. A Catholic? I am the most anti-Catholic of them all, you know? And she said, I sometimes wonder if you're not Luther in reverse. (laughs) I had nothing to say. I just kind of walked back to my study, dazed, bewildered and confused. Luther in reverse. The words were reverberating in my mind. Luther in reverse. God, God forbid. But I went back and I said, I remember praying a prayer over and over again. I will do whatever you want me to do, Lord. I will say whatever you want me to say. I will go wherever you want me to go. And I will believe whatever you teach. So I try to keep a completely open heart and mind to the sacred scripture and the Holy Spirit. And whatever source would lead me to deeper insight into the Bible. So I began to teach more and more all about this kind of thing, so much that my church got excited The session came in, and the elders asked, why don't you completely readapt the liturgy? I said, liturgy? Presbyterians don't do liturgy. Well, you talk so much about liturgy, why don't you change ours to to fit the biblical pattern? All right, you know, because you want it. And they said, well, we want it because of what you've been teaching us. I said, that's fair enough. So I studied for several weeks, for a couple months, and I began to see that my liturgy began to resemble more and more of what I'd heard about the Mass. I'd never been to a Mass. I never wanted to be to a Mass. But people were telling me, oh, I was once a Catholic, and we used to do that too. We used to say that prayer. We used to do that, you know. I I, I brought in this practice of, of having communion every week instead of four times a year, which was the Presbyterian custom at the time. And the congregation flipped. They loved it. And then after the benediction, after we we got out, most of the people in the parish, it was small, but most of the people would actually stay around and have a kind of picnic lunch outside or inside if the weather required it. But the whole introduction of liturgy brought such a sense of community, such a sense of worship, divine majesty, God's holiness, and the living, practical relevance of the Bible. And, uh, that's the way it was in my parish. And, and then in my seminary classroom, it was the same way. I had been asked, you know, by the seminary, uh, trustees to come back and teach four classes instead of just one in the summer. So I, I did that. And the seminarians were going great guns. They really, they were enthusiastic. Only I, I I couldn't tell them that what they were really enthusiastic about was not necessarily historic Presbyterian doctrine, but what I was finding in the Bible, which the Roman Catholics had also discovered somehow, somewhere along the way. One of my sharp students, we'll call him John, raised his hand one evening in a seminar, and he said, uh, Mr. Hahn, this this is a funny question, but where does Scripture teach what Protestants always teach? You know, and I'm not a Catholic anymore, and so I believe what the Protestants teach. But you know how the Protestants teach that the Bible alone is our authority? Not for the Bible and tradition. What does the Bible teach this doctrine of sola scriptura? The Bible is our sole authority. And there was all of a sudden a rush of emotion. I thought, oh no, no, no. I've already given in on, on, on one of the two basic planks of the Reformation. That is, we're, we're saved by faith alone. And now he's going to challenge me on, we only believe by scripture alone. And I said what any professor would say under those circumstances, what a dumb question. And I remember thinking to myself, I, you've never said that before to any student with any question. And as I sat there perspiring, looking at John, you know, he looked at me and he knew it was not a dumb question. And most of my other students knew it too. And I said, well, you know, uh, obviously we, we would go to, to, to Matthew 5, 17 through 19. We'd, we, would, we would start in 2 Timothy 3, 16. We'd look at what Christ said about tradition in Matthew 15. And John said, well, wait a second, Mr. Hahn, you know, that uh, Jesus wasn't condemning tradition in Matthew 15. He was just condemning corrupt tradition. Uh, 2 Timothy 3 is not saying that the Bible is our only authority. It's just saying that it is authoritative and necessary Know what God wants. And the more he talked, the more I thought, well, well, look, you know, John, since we're, since we're in the middle of class tonight, why don't I just deal with this next week, okay? Another invasive maneuver, number two. And he goes, all right. But I could tell by his eyes that he was not satisfied, nor was I. I remember driving home that night, down the, uh, the freeway, thinking to myself, what is the answer to that question? I was always known in seminary as being the gadfly who would bother every professor with the hardest questions imaginable. I used to always love to come up with the real stumpers. And they dreaded seeing that hand go up. And then all of a sudden, the tables had been turned. A question I never, I mean, it was sort of like asking, you know, to, to look at your eyes or to taste your tongue or to listen to your ears, it was just like, you know, how can you question solo scriptura, the Bible alone, that's the basis for everything we do. It's the air we breathe in our theology. I made two or three phone calls to the top theologians in the country. I'd studied under them, or I'd read their books, and said, i got a kind of silly question. I know it's, you know, maybe I'm suffering from amnesia, but somewhere along the way, I've forgotten the very simple and unanswerable reasons behind our belief that the Bible alone is the authority. And as I talked to one theologian after the other, They were all saying the same thing. First they would say, what a dumb question, (laughs) and then they would say the same thing I had said to John, giving the same scriptures, and then I would give them the same response that John had given me, and I'd say, what more is there? And the response kept coming back, well, I mean, just look at what the Catholic Church teaches. Obviously, Catholic tradition is wrong, and I said, obviously, I agree, It's, it's wrong. But where is the generic notion of tradition necessarily wrong? After all, St. Paul says, hold fast to what I've handed down to you, whether by word of mouth or in writing. I said, there it's referring to oral tradition and not just scripture. And one by one over the phone, these theologians were telling me, well, it's the assumption of all our theology. And I said, well, what if this idea of sola scriptura is not scriptural? How ironic. I wasn't telling my wife about these questions. She was wondering enough. But I found myself one day invited out to lunch by the chairman of the board of trustees of the seminary. He said, Scott, I've got an invitation. I want you to consider to be becoming dean of the seminary. At the ripe old age of 26, I was sitting there feeling very mature and aged and wise. No, I wasn't. <laughs> I couldn't believe what he was saying to me. I had no idea. I thought he was going to say, you know, we've heard some bad things about your teaching. You're introducing these crypto-Catholic notions, you know, and polluting our Presbyterian pastors, you know. But he said, we want you to become dean because you are lighting a fire under the students. They are just enjoying these classes, and we hear good things. And I said to this guy, I'll call him Steve, I said, Steve, there is nothing in the world I would rather do and to be dean of this seminary and teach these classes, whatever classes I wanted to teach, I could have taught. Nothing in the world. I said, Steve, to be real candid, my dream was to make it into my 40s, teaching here or there, but then sometime in my late 40s, get a post at a seminary. And here it is being dropped in my lap at the age of 26, and I have to say no. He looked at me and he goes, why no? He had talked to two or three trustees who had discussed this with me six or seven months before, and I had said, sure, the opportunity will never come up, but if it did, I'd, I'd grab it. And I said to Steve, I said, I can't tell you the reasons why right now. It's too, it's too troubling for me. But I'm going to step down from my pastorate. I'm going to step down from my high school post. And I'm going to step down from teaching any more seminarians. What are you going to do? I said, "Well, I'm not sure." Well, you've got a second child in the way, don't you think you ought to know? Yeah, I think I, I think I ought to know. Well, I'll pray for him. Do that. And I went away in a cold sweat, thinking, "God, anybody home up there? You know, <laughs> what about it? <laughs> what am I going to do? It was scary, to say the least." I said to my wife, "I turned down a an offer today. What was it? Uh, Dominion Theological Institute." Invited me to become dean. You? What? You, you, I thought I heard you say you turned it down. Yeah, I turned it down. She must have thought that somebody was standing there impersonating Scott Hahn. Quizzically looking at me, eyeing me up and down, wondering if I was drugged drugs or something, you know. Why? I said, we have to talk. And I said, I am so concerned about teaching the truth I don't want to stand before Jesus when I die and when I'm judged and say well I just taught what I was taught I I said to my wife I want to I want to be able to look Jesus Christ straight in the eyes and say Lord Savior I taught what you showed me what you taught me what you revealed and I said I can't do that right now honey and I can't teach if I can't do that my wife is unbelievable she You know, she is the greatest. She said, I respect that so much in you. She said, then we'll do whatever we have to do. She said, we'll get a job. We'll find a job. We'll trust the Lord for this because you're walking upright, you're trusting him, and you're not disobeying for convenience. I said, wow, prayer number one answered. Now, what are we going to do? We looked into a doctoral program at Westminster Seminary. We couldn't afford it. It would take too long. I wasn't sure if I wanted to go to a staunch Calvinist seminar anymore. I just decided instead, look, I'm going to move my family back to a little town where we both went to college and we both graduated, back to Grove City, Pennsylvania. We know lots of people. We've got lots of friends. Why not just settle down and raise a family in a small town? Well, what are you going to do there? And I said, I don't know. I'll find a job stuffing grocery bags, working at the hardware. I'll find a job, you know. So in faith, we just simply moved back to the town where we'd both gone to college, had lots of friends. We rented a house. All these friends, former professors, said, great to have you back. What what are you you coming back for? Oh, find a job. You don't have a job? We heard you were a pastor. We heard you were a teacher. We heard you were a seminary professor. And then you quit them? And just to come back? Yeah, I want to raise my family. And uh, I couldn't tell anybody what was going on. So anyway... The president of the college asked me to become assistant to the president. I could teach philosophy and theology to freshmen. I didn't want to teach anything more accelerated than that until I'd sorted things out myself. And in the evenings, I was free from around 8 o'clock in the evening till around 2 in the morning. For two years, for about 4 to 6 hours a night, I began to read and read and read. I got through over 200 books that were almost all written by Roman Catholics. I wanted to hear from the horse's mouth at least on the printed page. I even ventured out and went to visit the parish priest, who was a chain-smoking, profane, nominal priest, who couldn't care less about prospective Protestants converting. And so that was fruitless. And so I went and paid a visit to a Newman Center nearby, which was to to serve Catholic students. Well, the man made it very clear that ever since Vatican II, it's not ecumenical to convert. I thought, what? You know, I want to convert. I'm not I'm not saying, you know, twist my arm and make me. I'm saying, I want to. Well, no, you would do more good for the Catholic Church than for everybody if you just stay put. I thought, no, you don't understand. So I, I went elsewhere. I, lo- I looked around here, I looked around there, and I just couldn't find, you know, straight answers. I kept reading. My second year at this town, I decided to enroll in a doctoral seminar at Duquesne University in Roman Catholic Systematic Theology. I would go down for Thursdays once a week and spend about 18 hours in the library studying and reading and talking to professors all about it. Well, I was surprised to find myself in one seminar after another explaining from Scripture where the Catholic Church got this belief, explaining to priests or ex-priests who were teaching these seminars where the Catholic Church got that belief, what John Paul means when he speaks about the covenant of marriage, because my tradition was in the covenant, and most of my own study from the covenant had led me closer and closer to the Catholic Church, I, I kept wondering, why am I, and why is my best friend who's a Presbyterian minister in the same doctrinal seminar, why are we the only ones seeing in Scripture these these Catholic ideas? There was a lot of confusion at the time, and there is today everywhere. Well, it ended up that this other guy who was studying with me named Tom, who's a Presbyterian minister, and I would have these late-night talks with him. He was hoping that he could just go Episcopalian or Anglican, and I said, Tom, let's go out for a drink. And so we'd go out after our seminars, and I'd just talk to him for an hour, two, three, four hours until midnight, thought he had to get home. And uh, one night, it was one afternoon, my wife got a call when I was out of the house, and Tom had called out of the blue. My wife didn't even know him. And he said, you're Kimberly, right? Yeah. I'm Tom Sonley. I've heard about you. Here. I just became Catholic, and I'm so excited. I just had to share the news. I got home and my wife was looking at me, what have you been doing to them down there? And this guy used to be a pastor at the church, the Presbyterian church where I'd grown up. She couldn't believe it. So what she was doing on the sly, I hadn't known about, but she was contacting my friends, calling them up at night and saying, you know, would you be interested in kind of rescuing my husband from the, the clutches of Roman Catholicism? Most of my friends would say, Scott Hahn, Catholic, no, just give him time, ask for a little sleep and some water, he'll get over it, you know. And she was begging and pleading with some of them, no, you don't understand, this thing is really strong in him. Finally, my best friend from seminary, the only other guy in the Presbyterian Fellowship who thought that the Roman Catholic Church was the Antichrist, who was a Presbyterian at the time, a Presbyterian pastor at the time in Harrisburg, he said to my wife, yes, you know. And I could tell in my wife's eyes that she viewed Jerry as her gallant hero, her gallant knight in shining armor, coming to rescue her husband. So he called me up and said, I understand you're reading Catholic theology. but well, why don't you read some anti-Catholic theology? I said, like what? Send me some titles. And I said, ah, you send me some titles, and can I send you some titles? Sure. He sent me about 10 or 15, maybe 20 titles. I worked through them. I sent him 20 titles. He worked through those. Got a call. Well, how'd you like the books? I said, no, they're not answering the questions. I need more. He Gave me five or six more. He said, could, could, could you give me some more titles? Sure, Jerry, I'd, I'd be glad to. I'll send you a box of books, you know, not just names and authors. So I, you know, he, he called me back uh, like three or four weeks later. I've been reading. I said, well, I gave you lots of books. He said, I, I, I finished them. All of them? All of them. Now, I wouldn't think you'd have time as a busy pastor to read those books unless something was brewing inside. Something is brewing inside. Uh, can we talk sometime? <laughs> so, we talked long distance, four or five hours at a crack, till three, four in the morning. Many occasions. Trying to figure out the loophole. Where are they wrong? Where did the Catholic Church go wrong? They're wrong. That was a given. But how can we prove it? Where? Where's the proof? How can we? We're getting desperate. And over and over again, whenever we'd think we'd find the Achilles' heel, the vulnerable spot of weakness, we'd find not only was there an answer, but it was a strong, unanswerable, uh, it would be a strong, incontrovertible answer every time. And we were really getting nervous. So we both had a mentor a very famous theologian who had been like a spiritual and academic father to me and my best friend Jerry. We called him up. We'll, we'll say his name is uh, Dr. John. And we said, Dr. John, we need to get together with you because we know you're Harvard-trained, you're a leading Presbyterian theologian in the world, and you are the expert on the Catholic Church and all their many errors. Oh, sure, why do you want to get together about that? Because um, both of us are thinking seriously about becoming Catholics. What?
2: Yes. We'll get together. When? I mean.
1: And we we arranged to do it in a matter of days. He just dropped everything. I drove down to his house, and then we drove out together to Harrisburg for three hours in the car. And he talks ten times faster than I talk, and I talked ten times faster than I'm talking now. We got about forty-five hours of conversation squeezed into those three hours. I was sharing this big backlog of arguments that I'd piled up, unable to share with any of my friends and associates in Grove City. And as he would hear them, he would say, Ah, that's clever, that's clever. I didn't want to hear that. But he would just say, Keep keep sharing this. you. Know, well, I'm sure there's a way you can you can do these arguments in a in a way that will keep you in the Presbyterian church. Oh no, you don't understand, you know, and I point these things out to him. And we finally got to a holiday inn outside of Harrisburg where we met Jerry. For six or seven hours, we sat there with the Greek New Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament, the Council of Trent, all the official documents of the church spread out onto this table, going at it, hoping, praying, and believing that he would rescue us from this dragon. At the end, I remember we both had to excuse ourselves to go to the restroom. I looked at Jerry, he looked at me. We shook our heads. No, 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 he's been taking these texts out of context. He's been misinterpreting the Council of Trent. He's been misinterpreting the... Vatican II, he's been he's been misrepresenting the Catholic Church to us for years. And as we present to him one argument after the other, his answers were just simply not persuasive. We were both nodding, we both had the, the clear sense that we'd been set up. And it was a very humiliating sense, at the same time it was very exhilarating, it was exciting, but scary. So I went home, and my wife and I had been talking, and she'd been praying and hoping that this confrontation would just kind of end it all. And when I came back quite sure that this was, that, uh, that this Dr. John, this professor, had not answered questions at all, but in fact that raised more questions, then she decided that I needed to do what really both of us knew all along, and that was devote myself full time to doctoral studies in a Catholic school where I can hear from the horse's mouth and I can see the church for what it is. So I moved to Milwaukee to study at Marquette University. After investigating many programs, I found that was the best for what I needed. I moved there and. I planned to convert, if necessary, if absolutely necessary, 1990, the earliest. And even that date just seemed frighteningly close. But my wife and I had agreed on a timetable, and we plotted out neatly, and it was going to be an academically respectable move, intellectually credible and all that. And I, I, made a, I made an awful mistake, terrible blunder that I'll pay for for the rest of my life, thankfully. I went to Mass one day. First time, down at the University uh, Parish, and I saw all the street women and all the slugs and all the people walking in the Mass. I thought, I'm going to join them this time. And they were just a bunch of rank-and-file type people, you know, workers coming in from midday, just at at the 12 noon Mass. And I sat there looking at all these people. None of them were theological students going for their PhDs. I looked at their devotion, their sincerity, taking time out in the middle of the day to worship. And I watched you know, how during the consecration, their heads were bowed, their lips were moving, their hearts were stirring. I was moved. And I remember leaving thinking, my study of the Eucharist, my belief that Jesus Christ is truly present in the Eucharist, based upon my exegesis and interpretation of the Bible, almost so I could see what it meant practically to try to live that belief out. And here were these common folk, salt of the earth, living, praying, and loving the doctrine I was just beginning to really believe firmly. I went back the next day, and the next, and the next. Within a week or two's time, I had fallen head over heels in love with the Mass. Whoever was saying it? none of them were great and glorious, was never in Latin, no no smells or bells, incense or whatever. Just a routine, quick, midday mass at noontime. But I was transformed within a week or two. The Eucharist became, in a sense, the all-controlling central desire of my life. I can't describe to you the passionate thirst and hunger that came over me day after day after day as I saw all these people going up and being fed with the body and blood of our Lord. I thought, when? 1990. Oh, when? 1990? I was really troubled by that. And then meanwhile, in my doctoral seminars, I found myself once again explaining all these Catholic beliefs from Scripture to Protestants and Catholic students who weren't understanding them. And that was also troubling. Well, I was beginning to crack. My timetable was beginning to crumble. And then all of a sudden, my best friend Jerry called me. He was taking his Ph.D. at the time, having left his pastorate. At Westminster in the bastion of Calvinism. And he said, Me and my wife Leslie, we've decided to, uh, to join the Roman Catholic Church in a month on uh, Easter Vigil. I said, Jerry, you can't. You, you, you can't do it before me. You can't beat me to the, the draw. I mean, I, you, I mean, we, I, you can become a Catholic? And I put down the phone and I said, To shock, I went down to my wife, can you believe that Jerry's going to become a Catholic you with know, his wife Leslie? What are you going to do? I don't know. Remember what you said, 1990. Yeah, I know. That's what I said. I want to find out what God says. Oh no! Don't pull that on me. I said, okay, I understand. But would you pray too? You no, know, I've been praying. So I was I was upstairs in the third floor study praying for hours in the evening, just agonizing because of this decision, knowing that my best friend and anti-Catholic partner was about to receive our Lord in the Eucharist in a matter of days. And I was dying of jealousy. And I began to pray, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? When do you want me to do it? When do you want me to do it? Come on, quit playing games with me. Finally, I stopped talking and just listened. And I didn't hear any bells or voices, but I had this internal sense that God was saying to me, what do you want? It was the first time I felt that freedom. What do I want? That's easy. I want to get home. I, I, want, I want to receive our Lord in the sacrament. I want, I, I want the Eucharist. I I want in. And I thought, that's the answer. So I went down and said to my wife, have you really been praying? Yeah. I shared, with, I shared with her what my feelings were. She had not been reading anything about the Catholic Church up until now. She had her third child on the way. She was busy at the time. She she couldn't keep up with with her theological study. And so she said, uh, oh, wonderful. And I could tell it was crushing her inside. I said, you know, I want you to have the freedom to pursue the Lord in obedience any way you think that he's calling you. But I need that same freedom. And I think you want me to have that freedom, even if it hurts. It took her days. It took us days to work that through. It took us weeks to work that through. But the Holy Spirit is powerful and active in my wife and in many Protestants. So she attended Easter Vigil in 1986, the Mass where I was received, the old Grand Slam, baptism, confirmation, confession, and the Blessed Eucharist. And I cannot tell you the joy that came into my soul. You know, I'd like to say emotionally I was overpowered. Intellectually I was just swept off my feet. But actually I was late for dinner. I was almost late for the Mass. Everything was going so fast that day. By the time I actually received the Eucharist, I was barely catching up with myself. And all of a sudden I realized for once, my religion does not depend upon my feelings. Christ is here whether I feel it or not. Christ loves me whether I feel it or not. I have received Christ into my heart and into my body. And it doesn't depend upon how much I get myself worked up with enthusiasm. And again, a sense of liberation, freedom just came over me. Anyway, I found myself in a position within a matter of weeks and months, and I'm going to wrap up at this point, where friends began calling. We heard nasty rumors, Scott. Vicious lies. We're calling to get these things straightened out. There are people who are destroying the character by saying certain things. I'd say it's all true and then some. <laughs> Why? I mean you? And I, I can't tell you, but I could show you the phone bills for the next three months. <laughs> I mean, it was expensive. Talking to all my friends, many former professors. For instance, we'll call one friend Art. He had his doctorate in theology. He had taught me theology when I was in college, and the Art called me, and we talked. And he said, how could you do this? And I said, Art, just answer me one question. What do you think is the pillar and foundation of truth? For well, the Bible, of course. And I said, Art, that's not what the Bible says. 1 Timothy 3.15 says that the pillar and foundation of truth is the church, the household of faith. Oh, you set me up. So I have been set up. You know, I thought that the Bible alone wasn't. It was a conversation like that. or like you know, Somebody said, how can you believe what they believe about the Mass? And I said, well, Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise them up in the last day. My flesh is food indeed. My blood is drink indeed. And for some reason, Protestants often develop a kind of unconscious reading habit of of skimming over and missing the meaning of verses that are blatantly Catholic. So I had the privilege and the difficulty of sharing with my close friends these passages. One of my good friends from seminary, I didn't know this at the time, was suggesting to my wife that she consider divorce. He talked to her as a pastor, and I guess he was seriously urging her to consider that. I can't tell you his name because he's now a Presbyterian pastor about a half centimeter away from joining the Roman Catholic Church. I want to encourage you, I'm not going to encourage you to go get PhDs in theology. I'm not going to encourage you to go back and reinvent all the wheels. You don't have to. God has blessed you. I want to encourage you to give thanks to our Lord for what he has, in fact, given you. Sometimes it takes an immigrant to really explain patriotism to natives. Sometimes it takes a convert to explain to cradle Catholics the greatness of their faith. I don't mean in any way to be arrogant in that. I don't mean in any way to suggest that I'm any better. I'm not. But I do wish to share, and I wish to encourage you to go out into the deep, to dig in to what you have as a legacy, a living heritage, to study sacred scripture. I don't know if you've ever read Vatican II documents, but there's one of my favorites. Is one the Church gave us all about divine revelation. And this might be news to some Catholics, but the Vatican II Council Fathers said this: "The Church has always venerated the divine Scriptures, just as she venerates the Body of the Lord. Since, especially in the Sacred Liturgy, she unceasingly receives and offers to the faithful the Bread of Life from the table, both of God's Word and of Christ's Body." Do we venerate Sacred Scripture, or do we treat it like it's a Protestant book or off limits to the faithful? Do we see that it's the bread of life, that it's Christ's word to us, love letters from our Heavenly Father, written to the children that he has purchased with his own body and blood to bring us back into his own family? I don't mean to preach, I I really just wish to share tonight, but I want to say this, that whoever you are, wherever you're at, you can do a lot to help people out there Protestants who don't understand the Roman Catholic Church, ex-Catholics who are now Protestants who never did understand the Catholic Church, right, see the beauty and the simple truth of the Catholic faith. How? I'll give you three basic pointers or tips. First of all, prayer. Weekly Mass. Leading a sacramental life. Allowing the Holy Spirit to use all of the means of grace at your disposal. All those things that Christ died to give us. Deveil yourselves of those graces. Second, read the Bible. Not books at a time, but a few passages, a few verses every day in the evening. The third thing I would recommend is that you be the best friend, the best neighbor, the best worker, the best teacher, the best parent, the best person you can be. Because it's a slow and steady witness that really wins the hearts of people who see you in the long haul, living it out and struggling daily to be a better child of God and to allow the Father's grace, the Holy Spirit, to live life in you. When you do those three things, you will have a powerful effect that no one will be, ever, ever be able to measure. But I want you to take home tonight one thought. Pray about what you can do to be a witness to the glory and the truth of the Catholic faith. Every little bit helps. And you'll never know how much you help people just by being faithful in the little things. Being a good friend, being a good spouse, a good neighbor. Reading the Bible, getting to know the word of Christ. And then living a sacramental life in the church, praying every day and being faithful in those little things. Once again, I thank you very much for the opportunity and the privilege to share with you tonight. Once again, I'm not doing this for personal profit, but I am doing this for your personal profit. I want to recommend a few things that are are available on the back table. Three books that that are worth mentioning. This is the best theology guidebook for beginners, for lay people, for people who've never read any theology, but who will put in a little bit of time, patiently over weeks, Called "Theology for Beginners," it's by Frank J. Sheed, and it's outstanding. And I really, I, I commend this highly because it's the best introductory guidebook I know of. A second book worth mentioning is actually three volumes. This is only the third volume. This, for for my money, is the the uh, the most useful guide for Protestants I have. It's called "Radio Replies." It's put together by two priests, Rumble and Cardi. It was done back in the 40s, where people would send in questions about the faith, and they gave the most succinct, practical, understandable answers around. Three volumes. It normally sells, I believe, for $35. Tonight they have it down to $25 for three volumes. Each volume is long. This one's 330 pages. But every page is full of very simple questions and answers, But the kinds of questions that you're going to get. How many people here have ever had a family or friend, family member or friend, leave the Catholic Church for a Protestant denomination or sect or cult? It looks like almost, you know, half. It's not uncommon, and you know that. I I suspect that there are a lot more people out there too who've had, you know, a member or two in their family. I, I know Catholic families who've lost three, four five children to Protestant churches, to the high-powered evangelists. I don't know anybody who's ever converted to Protestantism who read radio replies. It isn't just an antidote to avoid Protestantism or, or, or this sect or this cult. It's probably the most profound and powerful guide I know to answer the questions that people are asking. This is a book that I'm going to be using as a text. It's called Catholicism and Fundamentalism by convocating the president and founder of Catholic Answers. I was just back in my alma mater two weeks ago for the 10th reunion in my college, and I went to visit a friend who was a basketball star when I was an undergraduate. They used to call him Pope. I never understood why, but it was because he was a Catholic before he'd become a Protestant missionary. I saw him there at the college, and I said, How are you doing, Andy? He said, i got to talk to you. We talked for three hours until three in the morning. He had just finished this book and he was stirred down to his toes. All of a sudden he just had all of these questions. Said, I want to know what the Catholic Church really believes because I found this book so helpful, he said. You could tell, you could see it in his eyes, you could see it in his heart, that he was seriously considering coming back into the Catholic Church as a missionary, as a minister, on the basis of one book. And that's why I'm using it as a textbook because like no other book written in the last ten years, this goes blow by blow through the questions that someone like Jimmy Swaggart has raised and so many other people about the Catholic faith, hooking, sucking Catholics out and into their own little groups only because they didn't understand. You might not be able to read these in the next month or two, but you know people who need them, and you know people who can read them, either before you do or after you do, and you can pass these around. And so I regard I regard good books as some of the most effective weapons and some of the best gifts we can give and uh, own. Again, I'm not here to make money. I'm not going to make a cent from any of these things. But I want to encourage you because this is like spiritual capital, the tools of our trade in terms of being and, and, and growing as Catholics. So I just wanted to encourage you in that way. Again, it's not a sales pitch. I just want to share these things because they've meant so much to me. Mary, Mary, Mary. (laughs) Catholics do not understand how hard it is for Protestants to comprehend Marian devotion or Marian doctrine. It is by far the most incomprehensible and offensive and patently unbiblical superstition going. Until God's grace opens your eyes, and all of a sudden you fell head over heels in love with the one you discovered as your mom. Uh, I, had, I had worked literally through, I would guess, a hundred different doctrines that the Catholic Church taught, that the Protestant Church rejected, and I came out Catholic on every one of them. In spite of them being Catholic, I just felt that they were faithful to Scripture. And then I came to Mary, and I... I remember reaching the point in prayer one day where I just said to our Lord, You know, they're, they're right on a hundred points. And I, I don't see on this hundred and first point. But I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to cut them to some slack. And I'm going to say a prayer. And I, and I had a little booklet with a thing called a rosary. And somebody had sent me some plastic beads. And so I, I hid myself in the office, locked the door, and very quietly whispered. Let's see. Mary, if you're up there, and this is wrong, don't be offended. Most of all, God, if this upsets you, please, I'm sincere, I'm just, okay, Hail Mary, and I prayed the rosary. I prayed, you know, I prayed a decade, two decades, three decades. And I thought, Mary, if you are up there, and if you're half of what the Catholic Church says, believes, teaches, then I'm going to give you an impossible. There's something that I've been praying about, and, you know, hoping for, for a long time, and really needing, and other people needing. It was just kind of one of those St. Jude type, eh, you know, you're throwing up. I right, hear it. Is. I prayed the rosary all five decades over that intention. And I remember it was the last day of 1983. I still had a long way to go, but I wanted to go over this hurdle. And I forgot about it. I prayed the rosary two or three more times the next week, but then I forgot about it. Three months later... That impossible situation had completely reversed itself. Everything that we had hoped, everything I need, we had needed just came true, came through in an unbelievable way. And I, I didn't even notice it. I didn't notice any connection with Mary until one day I saw the little plastic beads in the back of my desk. And I was just struck by my ingratitude and slowness. And I just paused and said, my, my Lord, you have answered my prayer and, So I took up the rosary and I began to pray it daily. And ever since then I've been praying it every day. And I tell you it is the most powerful embrace that God gives us. It's the most unbelievable weapon that we have. It really epitomizes to me the scandal of the cross. That God would take a little humble woman, a little peasant Hebrew, who is virginal and fruitful and raise up the God-man. And then the God-man who is the son of God and the son of man would exalt his mother. After all, I I explained to a Protestant theologian friend of mine just a few months ago, I said to him, you know, you find the Marian doctrine absolutely false and unscriptural. I said, I'll give you two points, and if you can answer them, I'll give it to you. The first point is that Christ obeyed the law perfectly, right? Of course. I said, and the Ten Commandments sum up that law, right? Of course. And the first command that deals with our fellow human relations is honor your father and mother. Of course. Right, so when Christ fulfills the law, he fulfills that command, honor your father and mother. The Hebrew word for honor, I means glorify, honor. I said, so Christ honors, he bestows honor, he glorifies, he bestows glory upon his mom, right? Oh, well, all right, yeah. That's the third, what's the second principle? We imitate Christ. I said, the Catholic Church isn't exalting Mary. Jesus beat her to it. We're just echoing and imitating our Lord. And the guy looked at me I never thought of it before. I didn't either. <laughs> so I prayed about three or four hundred rosaries. and it dawned on me in my meditation that, that all we're doing is what Christ has been doing as a perfectly faithful, obedient, loving son. And that's what the Father does to all of us. He loves us more than we love ourselves. He loves us just the way we are with whatever sins we've committed. He loves us just the way we are, but he loves us just too much to leave us that way. He wants to grow up. Wants to grow in holiness. Over here, so, Mr. Hahn, I wanted to ask you: uh, How would you explain to a Protestant about purgatory in the shortest way possible? I would. I would go to the Book of Hebrews and say, "Look, the New Testament describes our God as a consuming fire. Now, we often associate fire with wrath and anger. The New Testament more often associates fire with love, the furnace of." Of, of God's love, we often see the sacred heart portrayed this way. God's love for us is just burning infinitely out of control. He's just mad in love with us. He became one of us because that's the only way he could communicate that kind of infinite and eternal love for us. It's a raging inferno. I believe that God loves us just as we are, but he loves us too much to let us stay that way, but we often want to stay that way. The only way we can learn to grow up as children of God and love like our Father loves is through sacrifice, giving up ourselves. Suffering is always a part of that. If we always want to take the shortcut, the easy road, we in a sense short-circuit the process of our own spiritual maturity as God's children. God has another plan for us. And if we hold fast to our Father and ask him to teach us to love, then I believe that if he's God, a beautiful and glorious plan for our life now which entails great sacrifice so that we learn great love. And it burns, and it hurts, but it hurts so good because we learn to love like our Father. Those of his children who die with a great deal of self-love left over, who have taken so many shortcuts and formed so many bad habits, are taken into the very presence of God in a certain sense. But they're not ready for a face-to-face encounter with the presence of God because they have so much residual selfishness, self-love left over, a kind of inverted or disordered love. I believe purgatorial fire is nothing other than the glorious burning love of God consuming and purifying and purging out whatever is left of our selfish and sinful ways. And so it is not only not contrary to the work of Christ, it is just another glorious expression of the burning love that Christ expressed when he died for us on the cross. It doesn't undermine the cross. It expresses the love that led him to the cross, and it is the result of the cross. Everyone in purgatory, we have doctors and saints who tell us this, experiences a pain the likes of which they've never had on earth. Simultaneously, they're experiencing, experiencing a joy that no one on earth has ever experienced. How those two coincide, we won't know. So we get there, and hopefully we can bypass it. But I believe that the whole of purgatory from beginning to end is a lesson in the language of love, a burning love that burns off our self and disordered love. And that's the way I explain it to my wife, and my students, you know, and my children, my own self, you know. And, uh, you know, I, there's a book, uh, I believe, I, I don't remember who published it. Might have been Franciscan Herald Press in Chicago, but I believe a a father, I think Gable, but that might not be right. It's called *The Mystery of Purgatory*, and this author goes through contemporary theologians, but much more the saints and the doctors of the Church, showing how sometimes when you view purgatory as just an awful, infinite, fiery dungeon where God just takes out his pound of flesh, you know, you had too much fun on earth, and now I'm gonna, you know, even the scales. That's just a distortion of the glorious doctrine and the truth of it. Uh, St. Paul says in Corinthians, We'll be saved, but as through fire, and some will suffer loss, because they will have built on the foundation, which is Christ, with wood, and stubble, and that all will be burned up. So they will be saved, but they will suffer loss. Now, it's not just the loss of these things. Those things are, in a sense, their own works, which are superficial and, and false before God's law of love. And so... The burning purging process of God's love that meant that is meant to make us ready to behold his face forever in glory is I think what purgatory is all about. I hope that helps.
2: I had a question. Um, I remember meeting a man one time who was accused by many of his friends of being Catholic. And he got into a discussion one
1: evening with um two converts and they said, Okay. You know, there must be some teaching of the church that you don't accept, because otherwise you'd become a Catholic. Because, I mean, he said the Catholic church is the true church. You know, I believe the Pope is the vicar of Christ and, and the whole
2: bit. And he finally admitted a moral teaching of the church he didn't accept. My question is, is there an intellectual way of convincing people who say, I believe the church is the true church, but I don't accept this moral teaching?
1: I would uh, say that the problem is not at root intellectual then. The problem at root is moral. Uh, Satan is probably one of the most staunch Catholics when it comes to intellectual belief in the cosmos that for some reason his will lags infinitely behind his intellect and the last thing on earth or in heaven he would ever do is to convert or repent. I would suggest that somebody has a moral problem that they seriously look into their heart and pray to God for help. And treat the, the matter primarily as a moral problem and not primarily as an intellectual problem. You know, Mark Twain once said, quipped, you know, some people complain about the passage in the Bible that they don't understand. But I have my most, my biggest problems with the passage in the Bible that I do understand. You know, there's a certain candid honesty about that that I think is true for all of us. When push comes to shove, the Catholic Church is too good to be true and too hard to be lived. And that's where the grace of God is necessary. And uh, it's true for this person. It's true for this person who's talking to you right now. It's true for all of us. We need that grace. We need to pray for it and do it whatever we can to gain it for others.
0: We hope you were inspired by this podcast, and we encourage you to share it on social media and warmly invite you to distribute our free Catholic scapulars, medals, books, and booklets to your family, friends, parish, and social groups. Visit us online at catholiccity.com for more information. The real work of the Mary Foundation is accomplished by people just like you. There are three ways to help. First, please pray for everyone who hears, reads, or wears our materials. Second, share them with everyone you know, family, friends, fellow parishioners, and the people you work with. Only you can reach them. Finally, please help us financially. It seems impossible, but we don't do traditional fundraising here at the Mary Foundation. We rely on your generosity and God's providence. By the way, if you, your parish, or your Catholic group would like to distribute our materials by the dozens, hundreds, or even thousands, all we ask for is help covering our materials costs, so please visit us online for suggested donations. For our Canadian friends and those outside the United States, only online requests are accepted, so please refer to the special shipping rates listed on our website. Thanks for listening, and we're looking forward to working with you. May God bless you always. And now, here's a short preview of our Rosary and Divine Mercy Chaplet, the most popular rosary recording in the history of the world.
3: Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit.
2: As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end.
0: Amen. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without permission is prohibited.